Hello, I am Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Lauren Good. Hello. Ariel Pardes is out of the office today, recovering from dirty, dirty CES gremlins. That's a real thing. Uh, if you listen to last week's show, which we recorded in Las Vegas, you may have noticed that she was losing her voice quite dramatically. And uh, although her voice is not quite recovered, uh, her her whole upper respiratory system is also not quite recovered. So <laughs> she should be back next week. This is the podcast where we take you through all of the top tech topics of the week and break down the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But it's not just about gadgets, it's about relationships with them and how they impact our lives. And this week, we're going to be talking about forced arbitration, smart sneakers, and much, much more. And our excellent Wired colleagues, Natasha Tiku and Peter Rubin, will join us for these topics. But first, we're going to catch you up on some news. So what's the first headline? Okay. Well, you've been breached. Well, I don't know that for a fact, but there's a good chance you have been because earlier this week, Wired editor Brian Barrett reported on a massive data breach, one that puts Equifax to shame. There was a newly revealed trove of leaked data um, that included 700, more than 772 million unique email addresses, over 21 million unique passwords, and they were all posted to a hacking forum. Lovely. Now, credit for discovering this, or at least first reporting it, goes to uh, well-known security researcher Troy Hunt, who maintains that um, Have I Been Owned website, owned with P, of course. Um, And as Brian says, while it's difficult to confirm exactly where all of that information came from, it appears to be like a meta breach. It's a breach of breaches. It aggregates over 2,000 leaked databases that contain passwords who basically had this protective hashing and that had been cracked. So on the upside, there were no social security numbers or credit card numbers that appeared to have been included in this data trove, but it's still a huge huge breach. And basically, if you've ever wondered if you have been hacked before, you probably have. You should just go to Hunt's website, Have I Been Known, enter in your information. You can see if your data has been breached. And in the meantime, you should also be doing things like using two-factor authentication, um, using a password manager like 1Password or Dashlane or LastPass or something that scrambles your passwords. Unfortunately, you know, bad actors who are singularly focused on getting access to your data This is what they do for a living in some cases, and this is what they spend all of their time on. And we are busy human beings doing other things who also happen to have a bunch of passwords. And the only thing you can really do in some instances is be vigilant, be on top of your own passwords, be sure not to use like one, two, three, four, five, six over and over again, and just be smart, (laughs) as smart about your passwords as you can possibly be. In other news this week, Google announced that it is buying Fossil Group's smartwatch technology portfolio. Fossil is one of the biggest makers of smartwatches powered by Wear OS, which is Google's operating system for wearables that's based on Android. Fossil is unloading some of the intellectual property it's gathered over the years building watches that run on Google's software. So to be clear, Google is not buying Fossil. It's just taking the chunk of the company's IP related to Wear OS. So what does that mean for the future of Google-powered smartwatches? Today, folks in the industry are saying that this means that Google is getting ready to release its own smartwatch. Uh, This is something that Google has long shied away from, having chosen so far to simply help its hardware partners develop wrist-worn computers that run its software. But this week's acquisition uh, sort of puts Google in a prime position to release a watch under its own name. So Lauren, you reported on this acquisition today, so I'll ask you, what would a Google watch look like? Uh, smart. A smart watch would look smart. 
<laughs> Sporty, I think. My guess, my best guess, and based on some reporting, is that what we might see would be something like a Google Fit smartwatch or a Google Pixel watch that has a heavy emphasis on health and fitness tracking. Mm-hmm. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that Fossil made clear, the Fossil Group made clear that Google is not acquiring all of its smartwatch business. Fossil will continue to make you know fashion-first hybrid smartwatches on its own, and it's retaining some of the team to do that and continue supporting that. But Fossil recently released a sport-focused watch, and I think that there's a chance that there's part of that that Google and that platform that Google might have been interested in. Um, Google also, late last year, hired someone named Stacy Burr to run Wear OS and Google Fit. And Stacy comes from a background of digital sports, health and fitness tracking. She once ran a company uh, that basically made health and fitness tracking sensors for clothing. She worked at Adidas for nine years, basically like running wearables and digital sports for the company. So she has a sports background. And then the final point is just that a lot of people who are into the Apple Watch, which is the market leader in smartwatches, are into it because of health and fitness. And I think that's been made clear over the past few years. And Apple is certainly aware of it because it's really, you know, each generation of the smart the smartwatch just gets like more and more health and fitness focused. Mm-hmm. So I think that's driving a lot of demand for smartwatches and Google is very aware of that. So I would not be surprised if when we see Google's own smartwatch, it's something that, you know, purports to do pretty great stuff around health and fitness. Right. They would sell it as a fitness wearable the same way that Apple sells the Apple Watch as a fitness wearable. Exactly. Now, Google may face some challenges with that because of privacy. Of course, once you start tracking people's health, people do have concerns about where all that data is going. Apple, like, uses privacy practically as one of its, like, marketing pillars. Like, we keep all of your data private. And Google is not in the same business of that. So, um, So there will be questions about that if that's the direction that Google goes in. But yeah, I just wouldn't be surprised if that's what we see eventually. Yeah. And, you know, Google has traditionally used its, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, its its looseness around privacy as one of its own marketing features. Like we know more about you than anybody else ever will. So we're going to use that to give you features that make your life more convenient. Right. So I'd be really curious to see how a Google powered smartwatch would fulfill that part of the promise that Google makes to you when they take so much of your personal data. It's like, a great question. How would a smartwatch make your life more convenient? And how, and how much of how much of your own personal data would you be willing to exchange for that? Like mm-hmm. you use a Pixel phone and you, you re- rely on the assistant a lot. And we yep. talk a lot about how, how great it is, how useful it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a totally different approach to selling hardware than Apple's approach, let's say. It so, is. Yeah. Well, what would they call it? Hmm. Pixel Watch. <laughs> Pixel Fit. <laughs> That's actually, it's probably what they will call it. Something like that. Yeah, I put $5 on that for sure. Yeah, Stacy, Rick, if you're listening, <laughs> Pixel Fit. Pixel Fit. You're welcome. Okay. In other news this week, speaking of Google, tech workers at Google launched a campaign against mandatory arbitration agreements, and Googlers are not the only workers that are getting behind this cause. Wired's Natasha Tiku had this story, so I spoke with her earlier this week, and here's what she had to say. 
Natasha, thanks so much for joining us on the Gadget Lab podcast. So earlier this week, there was news from a group called Googlers for Ending Forced Arbitration. Tell us what the group is and what the news was about. Sure. So this group is an offshoot from the Google walkout, which, if you're not familiar, um, was uh, a protest with 20,000 Google employees. They walked out of uh, dozens of offices around the world um, to protest Google's sexual harassment policies. Um, And part of that discussion was about arbitration. Um, Arbitration clauses typically show up in your employment contracts, and they force you to see your claims with a private arbiter arbiter who's um, paid by the company rather than go to public court. This is the reason why Susan Fowler from Uber is not, you know, making headlines for her blockbuster lawsuit. Uh, So this group, rather than just like be content with Google's response to the walkout, which was mild at best, um, they decided to form their own group and keep pushing this issue. And the interesting thing here is that they solicited contracts from other tech companies. So it's not the first time that we've seen, you know, the growing labor movement in tech um, kind of coordinate. But I mean, this is like, I was mad I didn't do this story. You know, they asked on Signal and they, um, and they, the part of the reason they did this is because they're trying to show that there's no other option. This is what companies say about arbitration. Oh, you can opt out after 30 days. You know, if you're signing up with a new company, the chances that you will even A, know that that's there and Mm -hmm. B, know to drop out and C, be confident enough to um, tell this to your new boss is very low. And they were trying to demonstrate, um, you know, all of the ways in which forced arbitration agreements contribute to sexual harassment and discrimination. Mm -hmm. Because that was another thing about Google made a, um, after the walkout, they made a slight little tweak to their sexual harassment policy. And they said that um, individual claims don't have to go to forced arbitration, only for sexual harassment and only individual claims. And from all the lawyers that I've talked to, sexual harassment and discrimination just go hand in hand. I talked to this one um, Google employee who was saying, you know, if you're a black Googler, how do you know when the sexual harassment ends and the discrimination begins if you Mm -hmm. had to face something like that? Mm -hmm. So So basically Google's tweak after the earlier walkout was, okay, we'll fix this one thing, but then your legal rights are still fairly limited as an employee. And this group said, so we're going to go to two other companies and Many get other their – and so who, yeah. was in, who was included? And Facebook was one of them, right? Facebook. Um, what are the other companies? Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, who has a surprisingly great contract in comparison. Um, and they also went to uh, third-party contractors. And that's a big deal because, like, Google's workforce is almost half contractors. And you might think it's – um, you know, that involves non-technical people, uh, security guards, cafeteria workers. But they have uh, – engineers on contract too. So we're seeing like an increasingly sophisticated workforce try to tackle these problems in a unique way. You know, some I've been writing about these issues a lot and people are always like, when are tech workers going to discover unionization? But, you know, that might not really be the way for them to push the agenda. They might be doing it in this way, um, launching a uh, public awareness campaign. Do you see this leading to other campaigns related to other just workplace um, rules, standards, policies. I mean, is this going to open the door for all these companies to band together in other ways? I think it will only happen incrementally. But, you know, Google didn't 
respond to their questions. They also solicited contracts from Googlers, and they found out that um, even letters that were going out after the announcement was made didn't change the contract, and Google didn't respond at first, and then they were forced to say something. And so it just gives you, like, you know, protection and ammunition if you want to push these issues inside your own workplace. There's legislators looking at it, um, but the chances of movement on any legislation anywhere are so slim that, um, you know, just kind of building a groundwork of support and awareness um, is is a big deal. What do you think is going on broader culturally in Silicon Valley that makes something like this possible, feasible for employees right now that maybe wasn't happening even just a couple of years ago? I think that, um, you know, tech workers are realizing that they are workers like everyone else. You know, they have better salaries, incredible perks, um, you know, the uh, exquisite exquisite pleasure of, you know, not having to worry about being out of a job in five years or two years, maybe in 10 years, you know, they'll automate engineering. But they are still controlled by their employer. And I think they're realizing, especially, it's like a disillusionment with all of the rhetoric about Google. You know, one of the, um, one of the videos that they posted on, on their accounts, this, this group was from Loretta Lee, who is a former Google engineer who sued for sexual harassment. And she said in the video, you know, I really thought that Google was going to adhere to its values. So many, so many tech workers that I've talked to have said the same thing. You know, that's why you didn't see dissent until recently, until they kind of recognized or realized that, um, you know, the bosses are in control and they have an agenda. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Natasha for joining us briefly on the show this week. And if you're interested in learning more, be sure to go to her story on Wired.com. And now our smart sneaker future has arrived. Wired's Peter Rubin is joining us on the show this week to talk about his recent trip to Nike HQ to report out the company's new connected sneaker project. Hi. Was that an introduction? I was like, what is this part for? Are you wearing them now? I'm not. I'm wearing, it's been raining for like a year and a half in San Francisco, (laughs) which means I can't wear any of my kind of current rotation of sneakers. I always default to wearing a beat up pair of Adidas Sambas, which are just like the best for grime. Like they'll never show dirt. So like this is my go-to bad weather shoe. They're also good for drum and bass, by the way. They're yes. also good for 1992, by the way. They're perfect for 1992. This might be a 1992 <laughs> pair that I'm wearing. Yes. I think it was more gazelles in those days, uh, but but I always keep one pair of Sambas in the mix at all times. So I'm not wearing them now. I'm not even wearing Nike now. So uh, tell us about the new uh, the newfangled Nike shoe that you yeah. saw. Well, close readers of Wired may remember that uh, about a year and a half ago, we published a design issue and the cover story of which detailed the development um, of the HyperAdapt 1.0, which was this shoe that Nike had made that big claim to fame was, was, quote, power lacing. Now, power lacing as a Nike idea dates back all the way to Back to the Future 2, when Marty McFly put on his shoes and they laced themselves. And he said, whoa, power lacing. I can't do a, <laughs> I can't do a Michael J. Fox. Uh, that shoe eventually got released first as a non-power lacing version called the Air Mag in 2011. And then in 2015, they made like 80-something pairs of self-lacing Air Mag. 
flags. Michael J. Fox, of course, got one, and every and it was all for charity. But this was all part of this kind of long process to realize this vision of a shoe that would tighten itself around your foot and adapt in a way that was kind of individualized. Mm -hmm. So this Hyperdapt 1.0 came out and it was $720 and not only was it tough to find and incredibly expensive, but making it was a huge pain in the ass because they had to basically make all of the shoe parts that weren't electronic and then ship them to an electronics factory where the electronic people, the people in the electronics factory had to make the shoe. And people in electronics factories are not really used to making footwear. So it was just a big mess. And it was kind of this painstaking one at a time process. Now though, they finally iterated and the kind of first big step in this connected shoe project uh, is coming out next month and just got announced earlier this week. And it's called the Adapt BB. BB is for basketball. Lauren's sport of old, and uh, this is the first like <laughs> long, true <laughs> long time ago. This is the first true performance sneaker that they're making with this technology. So, and not, how much do these cost? These are a mere three hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, okay. So That's less than half bad. the price. Yeah. And uh, Jason Tatum, who's a second-year star for the Boston Celtics, is going to be wearing them. I think he may have worn them earlier this week. I think the night, Wednesday night, I think he wore them on court. Um, he's going to be wearing them. Luka Doncic. Uh, who is the kind of presumptive rookie of the year is going to be wearing them on court as well for the Dallas Mavericks. So this is something that is a, it is that level of shoe, not just the electronics that are in it, which makes it a little more expensive. But um, what's different about this also compared to that predecessor, the Hyperadapt 1.0, is not only does this tighten around your foot, but it does so the the power lacing engine that's contained in the footbed also has a BLE sensor. It has uh, a gyroscope and an accelerometer. Um, so it essentially is smartwatch componentry in your shoe. So you can control the tightening of it via an app that Nike is also releasing called Adapt. So you can kind of tweak certain presets for each of your feet. So if you let left foot need like let's say you sprained an ankle on your left foot years ago it's a little swollen you're going to have want it tightened at a slightly different level than you're going to want your right foot it does seem based on your reporting and you did an excellent job writing this in wire.com so everybody go check it out but you talk a lot about how basketball is really hard on players' feet. You say yes. that if you've ever seen LeBron James's feet, it looks like his toes are crowded together for a selfie, which I love because, I mean, the dude's got some feet. He's same with, got same some Same with feet. Shaq, right? And so it's it's an incredibly hard sport on anybody's feet. And it seems like the, the novelty of self-lacing sneakers has really transitioned into a place where now we have the, like, the tech and also like the design knowledge to make something that's actually about fit and comfort and support. Like this is this is what the point is, right? That it's that it's supposed to like adapt to you and suit you rather than just being like, look, my sneakers can lace up by themselves. Absolutely. So basketball kind of has two distinct issues going on that made it uh, the the kind of first sport for Nike to really work in for for this technology. Um, besides the fact that it's a huge global brand and also Nike has all this tradition in the basketball space from Air Jordans to LeBron to Kobe to Kyrie Irving to Kevin Durant <laughs> to whoever, all these people have signature shoes, the biggest stars in the NBA. So two things going on with basketball. One is the damage that it does to your feet. Um, you know, there are a couple links in the piece that you can see what's going on with LeBron's toes. You can see Shaquille O'Neal's feet, which basically look like someone took a cartoon mallet to a bunch of potatoes and then those became his, like, it's a, it's a 
battlefield, uh, his feet. Um, and some of that is because everything that goes up must come down, right? So you have 260 pounds, uh, or in Shaq's case, 320 pounds or whatever it was, landing, you're landing on your feet dozens of times in a game. So your feet are gonna take damage just from the impact and also the quick cuts and all the, it's tough on your ankles, it's tough on, uh, it's tough on your feet. There's also the fact that basketball players traditionally lace their shoes incredibly tight to get their heel kind of locked in so there's no slipping because you need to have a little bit of room in your forefoot in the in the kind of in the toe of the shoe so your toes are going to get beat up and they're going to swell so you need to have room for that but if you have your feet big enough for them to have room to swell you need to really lock it down so you're going to lace it up tight and you're going to wear multiple pairs of socks and you're basically cramping your foot and when you go to the bench or you go to the locker room you're not unlacing your sneakers. You're just going to keep them tied up all game long. So these are kind of two things that are going on with basketball. So not only are you crushing your feet night after night after night, but you're also suffocating your feet night after night after night. So the idea behind the shoe was both, let's come up with a fit that's better dialed in to the individual and that you can adjust on the fly. So like you can sit on the bench and loosen it up a little bit. Now the NBA, of course, because it needed to approve the shoe, has rules for it meaning you can't use the app to control the shoe unless you're in the locker room. So when players sit down, if they want to loosen the shoe, they're going to have to use the manual buttons that are in the kind of on the side of the shoe. It's Why nice that, that they did provide that, though. Yeah, there's, that there's a manual override. I think they just want to avoid the idea that you can have um, Bluetooth control. I want, The question is, is it for security reasons? Like, is it, they don't want a fan or a coach or someone on the opposing team like jacking with people's shoe settings, uh, like managing to pair with their Brilliant. shoes. So I don't know if it means like your shoe needs to be in airplane mode when you're playing the game or kind of what exactly is happening. That's something that I, I haven't asked the NBA directly yet. But they are definitely putting kind of safeguards in place to make sure that the connected parts of the shoe aren't going to be in play or introducing weird uncertainty during games. Interesting. That is really, it's fascinating. It's craziness. So did you, you slip these on? I did slip these on. Tell us what it's like. It's tight, man. Uh, now I realized that like, I was probably wearing them at least a half size smaller than I should have. Cause I was like, this is my usual shoe size, but this shoe they recommend going up a half size. So I also, uh, <laughs> behind the scenes, walked from my hotel to Nike campus in a new pair of shoes. So I had a little hotspot going. It was turning into a blister. And it didn't make things better when I had to kind of get this shoe on. So you put it on and the shoe immediately senses your foot because there's kind of a, a pressure sensitive capacitive plate in the lacing engine. And so it whirs to life. And then you can use the buttons or you can use the app to tighten it however you want. And there's like a one touch full release so you can get the shoe off. And at first I was like, this is going to be way too tight. This is going to be completely uncomfortable. And then I got on the court and I started dribbling and I started kind of cutting uh, terribly, I should point out. Oh, Everything on. that I did on the court was terrible. But the thing about it is my time wearing basketball shoes, which like Lauren's was uh, ages ago, was a matter of kind of tightening it in the ankle and thinking that if I wore high tops and they were tight around my ankle, then my foot was doing the right thing. But that doesn't really have anything to do with the way your foot makes contact with the ground mm -hmm. and the surety with which you can move laterally. And so I was really locked in from the heel to the, to the midfoot. Um, and that being secure 
is what trumps everything else. And so this is not a high top basketball shoe. There aren't really high top basketball shoes anymore, at least not like was the default for decades and decades. Like more signature models are either mid cut or low cut on NBA players because having leather around your ankle doesn't necessarily do anything to to prevent ankle injuries. It's much more about your foot being kind of secure and stable in the shoe. And so it felt, I think in the in the the phrase that I use in the piece is like it really felt like the shoe was grafted onto my foot. Like I was stepping on the court and had that feel of kind of barefoot contact despite the fact that I was clad in kind of $350 worth of weird synthetic fabrics and parachute cord and all the other things that go into the shoe. Does the tech add any weight to the shoe? So the shoe, a size nine, which is kind of the, the, the way people communicate the weight of a shoe, is right on the nose a pound. And so it's heavier than some, it's lighter than others. Like LeBron's tend to be a little bit heavier. Um, Kyrie's and KD's tend to be lighter. So it's kind of right down the middle. It's not going to be the lightest basketball shoe you've ever worn, but it's also going to be something that you don't really notice weight-wise. Why isn't Nike offering these in women's sizes? They are. I mean, WNBA players have definitely put the shoe through its paces. They haven't announced uh, specific WNBA players who are going to wear it on the court. Uh, and again, I think that that's a reflection of the fact that this is a shoe that's catered to actual professional athletes. So WNBA players are going to have bigger feet than kind of civilian women, just like NBA players are coming in at size 15 through 18. Um, and you're right that Nike is making nines and tens and shoes for the rest of men who don't have NBA sized feet. I don't know why they're not doing it for women's feet. Yeah, there was a report that said that um, the women could technically wear, I think, the equivalent of an eight and a half mm-hmm. if they go with the men's sizes. Right. But it doesn't size lower than that for d- women. Right. So, so if you're a professional w, you know, WNBA player who has size seven, mm-hmm. you're out of luck. And a lot right. of times people are buying these by the team. Right, yeah. Like teams buy them for I, the whole team. I think college is that still not, is that a thing. College anymore? teams buy them for the whole okay. team. Uh, in the associate in in the NBA, I actually don't know how the WNBA does this with kind of endorsements and and what people get is players. Uh, obviously, players have signature models. Players have endorsement deals to wear other people's shoes as long as they're with the company, and then. Shoe companies will provide athletes with basically cases of shoes. So, like, there are some shoes that are, like, standard issue for NBA players, like the Hyperdunk and the Hyperzoom. It's just, like, if you don't have a signature shoe, you're probably going to be wearing one of those two sneakers. Unless you're a sneakerhead and you just want to flex out on the court and you wear old, like, retro Kobe's, which happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially in my house. <laughs> <laughs> there, So there's this completely other story uh, which isn't in the Nike piece but like there is this kind of flex war that's going on in the NBA the rules got changed so you can wear shoes that are outside of your team's color palette so there are certain players who just wear a different pair every game and they wear shoes that haven't been around in 15 years they wear old Jordans they wear these crazy custom designs so there's the sneaker culture in the NBA is a crazy thing that rivals sneaker culture in the world at large. How that intersects with this particular shoe is I think players will probably be furnished with them by Nike, even if there's not a solid endorsement deal, like with Jason Tatum or with Luka Doncic. Um, but they invited a bunch of kind of young up-and-coming NBA stars to campus last year and had them scrimmage in this shoe. So... 
it's not like a guarantee and nothing has been announced, but I would guess that you're going to see a ton of rookies and promising second year players in the NBA and the WNBA wearing these. Kelsey Plum was in that NBA, uh, in the basketball scrimmage that Nike had on campus. I'm sure she's going to be wearing them on court. I'm sure we're going to see people like Darren Fox from Sacramento Kings and Jordan Bell on the Warriors wearing them. And so I think Nike's idea is you see this with young players, they're comfortable if you can get their behavior changed early, maybe they can avoid some of the damage to their feet mm-hmm. over over years time. Yeah. And if that starts to change the culture, Nike stands to have kind of an entirely different layer of infiltration into a league or leagues that they're already at kind of critical mass. In. I, I guess I was just wondering if the reason why they weren't officially offering them in women's sizes have to do with sizing. Like if, you know, the tech is so large or requires a certain amount of physical space that they're not able to get into smaller sneakers, or if it's more about just addressing a certain audience or certain market in the early days and then looking to expand after the fact. And if it's the former, I would think that their goal would eventually be to work towards miniaturizing this tech so that it could be, you know, less heavy, you know, lighter since, it, you know, these sneakers are a pound and also like they could put in their mass market sneakers in some way. I think both those are absolutely true. I think right now what you're looking at is a little bit of first generation. Mm-hmm. You get it to the athletes who are going to wear it, and then you get it to the kind of sneaker culture influencers who, granted, there are certainly women in that culture, but it's much more kind yeah, it's of male-dominated. Male. Mm-hmm. However, uh, the, the size of the, the engine itself is not big at all. It is, I think, 40 by 50 millimeters. Um, and so it can go, like it can go in an eight and a half or a nine men's. It could conceivably go in a seven men's or a women's eight or nine. Um, but also this module is, I think, 25 to 30% smaller than it was in the original HyperAdapt 1.0. It's going to keep getting smaller mm-hmm. and it's going to trickle down, I think, faster than people will expect into other shoes and other sports. We're going to see this in a running shoe. I can almost, without have, knowing anything, even on background or off the record, they never told me anything, but I would virtually guarantee that you are going to see that adapt fit technology in a running shoe sure why not probably before the year is out Mm -hmm. it just makes sense would you get that would you buy that i mean you know our boss nick thompson is kind of elite marathoner right so he wore that that zoom fly four percent the one that shaves time off your marathon I don't like. I'll run half marathons, but I, I don't. I'll, I'll lace my shoes up. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't. Uh, I am curious because there's other sides to this as well. It's not just on the performance side, um, but it's in the accessibility side. Like older people who can't necessarily bend down and tie their shoes, people who have difficulty with their arms and hands, um, or just mobility in general. This, and I've seen a lot of conversation online after my piece and a bunch of other pieces came out that this is kind of a really exciting thing for the accessibility conversation because it opens sneaker culture up to people that have maybe wanted it and haven't been able to take part. Uh, I'm now I have I have a weird job and I don't often ask questions that make me laugh but I'm going to ask you a question that makes me laugh. How often do you need to charge your shoes? You need to charge your shoes, they're saying, about every two weeks. Battery life in these, so it's a 505 milliampere battery. and It's not big. It's Mm -hmm. not big. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, based on 
how do they test the wear time? If you wear it five times a week, they're saying it's gonna last, you know, between an hour and two of play every time you play ball, it's gonna last between 10 and 20 days. So then- Well, there's no display, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's basically powering some type of of motion (laughs) processors, motion co-processors, right? Why would a pair of shoes need a display? And then the Bluetooth radio, right? And the the lights. And the lights, oh, because you lights. can, oh, so okay, the so. manual buttons on the side, of the, the, there's two manual buttons, mm-hmm. and I didn't get into like the visual language of the shoe, but much like the HyperAdapt 1.0, it's rooted pretty strongly in uh, the movie WALL-E, like that's mm-hmm. where the two glowing lights on the side came from. Oh, that's so funny. Um, and now there's much more like the, over, the, the iconography that's kind of included in the shoe at an Easter egg level is about butterflies and the metamorphosis and a chrysalis. So the dots that go back from the end of the swoosh to the to the heel fin is a is kind of mimics the dots on a monarch's wings. And on the sole, right in the kind of concentric circles under the ball of the big toe, there's a tiny little butterfly that you won't see unless you know to look for. And this is something that's always been in Nike basketball shoes. This is something that Tinker Hatfield started with Air Jordans. Um, And so every Air Jordan has had kind of a design inspiration and like hidden things here and there that sneakerheads love because Mm -hmm. it's just like that kind of coded language of a shoe. So the butterfly and Wally stuff uh, surfaces in the two lights that you can change the colors of. So there's 14 colors. You can't have the lights on in the NBA, but you can in casual play and on the street or whatever, so you can make it blue or red or whatever. Um, sorry, I got off on a tangent. No, We're talking light, about- there are lights because I, because I said displays and Mike is laughing at me, but I'm telling you, lights. what better use for all of these silly curved displays we saw at CES this year than the tongue of a basketball sneaker? That's right. It's Someday great... there's going to be just, you're going to look down, you're going to get all your notifications on the tongue of your shoe. And ads. It's a great place for ads. <laughs> Remember right. the, the uh, Kappa sneakers for cheerleading? And they would have two triangles on the side of the shoe and it was a sheer plastic cover and you would put in inserts to change the colors of the logo on the shoe so that you could wear them for your team. So like this kind of color customization has always existed. Now it's happening at the push of an app. Wow. Well, thank you for telling us about your fancy shoes. Not my fancy shoes. Yeah, let us know when you get them in the office. (laughs) I will. will. And by the way, tell Nike that if they're interested in having uh, a a former not illustrious basketball player um, trying them, uh, trying a women's pair, I'd be happy to. But they're going to have to make it smaller. So, women's seven. Uh, I will tell them I, the real wear testing happened in New York this week, but I think we need to do, I, need, I think we need to play a game of horse for a video yes. wearing these shoes. I would say one-to-one, but I don't want to get mopped, Lauren. <laughs> so, I think we need to do something competitive, but not truly competitive. Oh, that'd be awesome. I, but really, though, I mean, when I back when I was playing basketball, I would have loved anything that would have at least hinted, that, hinted at the idea of being better for your feet. Like to this day, my, I feel like my feet are still destroyed and they're not quite like LeBron James's. Um, oh, it would take a lot to have it, those poor toes. Yeah, his, his, crowded, his crowded little piggies in the, the selfie. Um, I love your description in the story, by the way. That made me laugh out loud. I have feet. to say but, uh, that the, the thing that made me think of it, I was like, how am I going to describe these toes? And I thought of your <laughs> Pixel 3 review. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. Together. And everyone crowding together. I was like, that's LeBron's toes. So I'm glad you appreciated it because you were actually the inspiration for it. It that's all comes amazing. full circle. Thank That's you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, Peter, before we let you go, 
we want to make sure that uh, you give our listeners a recommendation. This can be something that is a an app. Uh, it can be a movie. It can be a book. Uh, it can be a, a piece of wearable technology. Uh, whatever it is that you have experienced recently that you are excited to tell people about. Uh, I have a weird one, and I know that Lauren has kind of a, a current thing. Uh, and I feel weird. This is kind of a not too long ago thing, but it's something that I finally caught up with and I, and I wanted to make sure that I talked about it. And that is, so there is this show on Comedy Central called Detroiters. And it is the product of two best friends, Sam Richardson, who, uh, who plays Richard Splett on Veep. Uh, if you remember him, mm-hmm. and Tim Robinson, who was on Saturday Night Live for like a single season, they are both from the Detroit area. So they have they made the sitcom about two best friends who work at an ad agency, and it lampoons the kind of local market ads that you see everywhere. And it's particularly does these pitch perfect parodies of Detroit area local ads, which I know because my wife is from Detroit. So season one was good and I really liked it. And then we ended, we stopped cable just before season two came out and Hulu with live TV doesn't have Viacom networks. So we never saw it. And then uh, we got Philo as well, mostly so that RuPaul's Drag Race could be on in our home. And that all, Philo also is one of the very few streaming platforms that has Viacom channels. I think uh, Sling is the other. So we finally watched season two of Detroiters, which aired earlier this year. And it is a revelation. It takes what was kind of a good premise and you enjoyed because you could tell that these guys were actually friends in real life and there was this kind of great camaraderie that exuded from the show season two is so ridiculous and it led to more kind of surprised belly laughs like actual lol type of things it's mostly in their kind of energy vicissitudes like they will swing into like a five second rage and then back to calm in a way and it's and and it's just it's just it's more shock based laughter than anything else but it's really wonderful if you like the first season you will love the second if you've never seen it just watch season two it's phenomenal Detroiters Detroiters. season two of Detroiters and where are they now are they like done with season two on to season three soon no they got cancelled after the second season so I don't think there's going to be a third oh you're telling people to get emotionally invested in something that they can't watch beyond two seasons I'm telling people to enjoy this moment trapped in amber (laughs) (laughs) oh Peter used the word vicissitude and now I'm supposed to follow that yeah go for it I need some big fancy words all right, I have nothing. Uh, my recommendation, if you happen to be a Hulu subscriber, and even if you're not a Hulu subscriber, you might consider subscribing for this, uh, Fire Fraud. This oh is a documentary about the fraud that was Fire Festival, led by an entrepreneur and seemingly repeat con man, Billy McFarland, who convinced a bunch of millennials to basically throw all of their money into the promise of a giant music festival uh, in the Bahamas, filled with models and celebrities and all kinds of influencers. Um, And I think we all know the story because it was all over the news. They showed up. The festival was not, in fact, a thing. There were FEMA tents set up with mattresses and shitty food, and um, a lot of the bands backed out. And people had invested thousands and thousands of dollars, not only the attendees, but the investors behind the event itself. 
It's a crazy story. McFarlane actually sits for an interview saying that, you know, he wants to tell his side of the story in this documentary. And then you just see him clam up increasingly as the documentary goes on. And the producers behind the scenes are asking him harder questions. And um, it's really crazy. There also happens to be another documentary coming out on Netflix about the fire (laughs) fraud, the fire festival fraud. Uh, But that one is produced by Vice in conjunction with the the marketing company, the social media marketing company that helped put fire festival on and so i think it's a different i haven't watched the one yet but what i've heard is that it's kind of a different look at things and the the hulu one is pretty scathing and i i super recommend it because it not only is about this one singular instance of fraud but it says i think a lot about uh millennial culture and social media indictment of influencer culture too absolutely the importance that we confer on people it's i just want to co-sign it's it's really wonderful and there's also this like really starkly enjoyable schadenfreude that mounts as you watch Billy McFarlane squirm. (laughs) And it's just, I mean, it is just the noose. Like, you just see it tighten around him over the course of the the piece. It's great. Does he sit down on camera for the Netflix one? Do we know? I don't know. And it's out this weekend? Is that right? I believe so. Yes. All right, well, that's a solid four hours right there. (laughs) A lot lot was made of the kind of... Strategy judo because Netflix was dropping a trailer for their Fire Doc on Wednesday, and I think Net Hulu was like, "Hey, we have one, and it's out now." The day before, wow! So it was like a real shots fired moment. Yeah, that's also awesome. Ja Rule. Also, ja Rule. oh man, <laughs> just just have to watch this. Thing. <laughs> All right, I got to see it. Okay. Uh, my my thing that I'm recommending is also a piece of visual entertainment that you can consume via a streaming service. Uh, now, when we were at CES, we had a lot of like sort of late night, you know, beers and ice cream kind of things as we were working. Uh, one night, we were all talking, us and the gear crew were all talking about our favorite rom-coms. And we went around the table and talked about what our favorite rom-coms were. And I mentioned mine, and not a lot of people had seen it. I think maybe only one or two other people had seen it. So I would like to recommend this movie um, because it is a fantastic film, and I just think more people should see it. And after CES, I went around and I started asking people, have you seen this movie? More people than than not said, no, they hadn't seen it. So I think it's it's a really great movie. I can't wait to hear what it is. I think I know what it is. It is a, is a 1995 film by Richard Linklater. And it is called Before Sunrise. Oh. Oh. Starring, wh- what? Oh. <laughs> Starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy uh, and pretty much nobody else. And they walk around and they talk for an hour and 40 minutes. And it is delightful. It's a really good movie. Uh, I know I'm not really selling it that hard. But uh, I got to say, you know, it's it's just uh, I was thinking about it a lot recently because it's like a romantic movie. And I'm not really like a romantic comedy kind of person uh, necessarily. I do enjoy a good rom-com every now and then. Uh, and it is rom-com weather slash season right now. It's like cold outside. We just had the holidays. There's a lot of, you know, rom-coms that have holiday theme like Love Actually and I don't know, whatever else people are into. Um, anyway, I just wanted to recommend it because it's just one of those movies that I just I'm shocked whenever people tell me they haven't seen it. Uh, if, if you're uh, of a certain age, it was a cultural touchstone for you. And I think there's a lot of people who are a little bit younger than I am. Who, for whom it is not a cultural touchstone and who were never exposed to it. It's an independent movie. It was around for a little while. It lived on VHS and then just kind of like disappeared. And, but it's a trilogy now, right? It is the first of three, maybe eventually four films. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the two characters in the movie uh, meet up 
I think eight years later, nine years later, and then there's a third film where they meet up, where we meet up with them eight or nine years after that. That first one distills a really kind of incredible phenomenon that I think a lot of people, though, have experienced, which is that thing where you connect with somebody and then you just spend the whole night, like, just experiencing life and talking to them. And you, like, there's this insane intimacy that's born of that moment. Mm -hmm. And that movie just really crystallizes it. And not only that, but it was before social media. So Mm -hmm. there's that inherent tension in this film that existed then that wouldn't exist now, like Mm -hmm. in a modern film, that's like, once we go, we don't know when we're going to see each other again. And we don't really have an easy way to keep in touch either. There's like a real challenge to that. Um, Now it's like, if there was a rom-com, it'd be like, find you on Tinder or Facebook or the gram or something like that. It just wouldn't carry the same, like their connection (laughs) wouldn't carry the same gravitas. Totally. So that's my recommendation. Mm -hmm. It's cheesy, but trust me, if you haven't seen it, just watch it. I watched a movie recently that was a rom-com called, I think it's called Before We Go, and it reminded me of that. It reminded Mm -hmm. me of Before Sunrise. It was actually directed by Chris Evans and stars Chris Evans, the Chris Evans who was like yelling about technology recently (laughs) on Twitter. Yes, and uh, and it's like that same kind of like meets a girl in Grand Central Station, and then they spend the whole night together just talking and trying to get their way out of a jam. So why did that remind you of of Before Sunrise? Well, I don't know. Just the fact that it was like... there's just like almost entirely two characters the entire film who clearly have a romantic connection and are like wandering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I see what you're saying yeah. now. Sorry. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, thank you for for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank I always you. have fun with Gadget. Lab. Oh my god, we'll come back on and we'll have an entire episode about romantic comedy. Let's do it. Um, tell people how to find you on the Twitter. Sure, I'm on the Twitter as uh, Proven Self. P R O V E N S E L F. And Lauren, you are? I am at Lauren Good with an E at the end. And Ariel, who should be back next week, is uh, Part Esoteric. Part Esoteric. Uh, I am at Snackfight, S-N-A-C-K-F-I-G-H-T. And uh, Natasha Tiku, who you heard earlier, is at Natasha Tiku, N-I-T-A-S-H-A-T-I-K-U. And of course, you can bling all of us at The Gadget Lab. Yes. Thank you for listening. Be back next week. See you next week.